Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good winter weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Each week on this show, I bring you stories and interviews that expand your worldview, inspire you to try something new, and show how food brings us together. So celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. I'm all about health and wellness, wine, trends, giving back, and living the best life. And you'll hear from chefs and artisan food makers, farmers and authors, travel experts, sommeliers, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. It's always my goal to feed your soul, so don't touch your dial because there is an hour of scintillating and delicious conversation coming up. In the dead of winter, and by the way, in Southern California where I live, it's actually been really cold, a big pot of tomato sauce and the smell that wafts through the house is heartwarming, don't you think? I love a long-cooked sauce, one that's really complex, just a tad on the sweet side, luxurious in its mouthfeel, and I like to cook it low and slow and long, so I cook it in the oven. I'm kicking off this week's show with a tutorial on the making of red sauce. A rich and hearty red sauce that tastes like it's been cooked for hours has, by the way, been cooked for hours. (laughs) The secret to its deep, naturally sweet, complex flavors is to cook the sauce in the oven, allowing the surface to brown while the sauce slowly concentrates. Now that ensuing sauce is perfect on pasta because it coats every strand or ladled over meatballs or for chicken parm. Or if you're like me, eaten out of a bowl with a spoon and a sprinkling of Parmesan cheese, which makes me very happy. Now, the Italians call it gravy, but that often has meat in it and it too cooks all day. I call this Italian American sauce because it's based in Italian roots but it also has American heritage. Now, this is not a light, fresh pomodoro sauce that's made from fresh tomatoes at the peak of the season from the farmer's market or even your backyard bounty. It's made with canned tomatoes. And if you have just the basic pantry ingredients on hand, then you could make it today. It's a real red sauce, but it's hearty and it tastes like little Italy no matter where you live. And I'm talking all day sauce here. So you're probably going to want to set aside your Sunday in your sweatpants and make a whole wonderful day of it. It is the kind of sauce that starts with the simplest ingredients, canned tomatoes, some aromatics, good quality olive oil, and some sprigs of fresh herbs or dried if you must. And then chemically, it transforms into something so good that you will be super proud to serve it. Or, like me, hoard it. (laughs) Now, the first question is the most important. What tomatoes do you use? Well, at the supermarket, you'll see canned tomatoes in a variety of forms. There's crushed and diced and in sauce and in puree, etc. But what I suggest you look for are whole peeled plum tomatoes, packed in puree. 
Now, you can also find pureed tomatoes, and I'm fine with that as long as they come from Italy. And here's the deal. I choose DOP San Marzano tomatoes that are imported from Italy. The DOP seal ensures that they were grown and harvested and processed under the very strict guidelines that guarantee quality to Italians. And for me, that's enough. Now, I do love the whole tomatoes. I think because I savor the process, you could puree them in your blender or food processor. It's a bit of a mess. But I was taught by an Italian. So squishing the tomatoes through your fingers not only delivers the best texture for the sauce, but it is also extraordinarily therapeutic. And you should take your time because, you know, during squeezing, they tend to make a mess as well. But there's nothing like getting your hands, well-washed hands, into the sauce. Now, that rough, chunky texture of hand-squished whole tomatoes in puree from a can will cook down into a sauce that has plenty of body while still being sort of textured enough, as I mentioned before, to coat the pasta. Uh, I do not suggest that you puree a tomato sauce after it's done cooking. So you want to make sure that you're starting with enough of a chunky texture that as it breaks down, you know that it's going to become that perfect viscosity. But let's start at the beginning. Some chefs will tell you that you should never cook with extra virgin olive oil if you're doing a long, slow process or method, or if you have other ingredients that are so bold that they will mask the genuine flavor of the olive oil. And most of the times I agree, you do not have to buy expensive extra virgin olive oil to make soups or stews or chowders or otherwise. But... In a tomato sauce, where there are limited ingredients, I want all the flavors to shine. So I really do start with a very good quality extra virgin olive oil, and I saute shallots. Oh, the shallot. Now, an Italian just fainted somewhere, and I'm sorry, because garlic is the probably most essential start to a good Italian dish. Uh, Then, you know, sweet yellow onion for many who make a tomato sauce would say it's essential. But garlic and onion combined in a shallot give me flavor and bite. And I love a shallot. It's not Italian, but it's my sauce and I like it. Nor is butter Italian, by the way, but I use it in my tomato sauce. Now, butter fat emulsifies much more easily with liquid than, let's say, olive oil. And it adds a really creamy texture to the sauce. So you know Scott Conant, right? The Italian chef, the chop judge, the restaurateur. Well, he taught me about butter in tomato sauce because I'm the one that called it crack. Yes, I've never had crack and I don't know what it's like. But Scott Conant makes scarpetta spaghetti at every one of his scarpetta restaurants. And I want to pick up the bowl in the middle of his restaurant and lick it clean. That's how good it is. So I asked him, what is it that makes the sauce so darn delicious? And he said butter and a lot of it. Since his scarpetta spaghetti is the best I've ever had in the States, there I said it, it's all about the butter. It's also about the herbs, like a big sprig of fresh basil thrown into the pot. And some like oregano and I respect that. So you choose, but fresh is best. 
And then with the herbs, I also add a pinch of red pepper flakes, salt to taste, which is essential, and some freshly ground pepper because that touch of heat brings out all the other flavors in the sauce. Now, if you're seeking sweetness like me, adding sugar, in my opinion, is a perfectly fine way to add sweetness to a sauce. You could saute diced carrot, but really I think a teaspoon of sugar cuts the acid of the tomatoes in a big pot of sauce and takes that bite away. And it's just enough to be subtly sweet to bring out the flavor of the salt as well. And now to the oven. When you slowly cook a liquid packed with protein and sugar and other aromatics, a few things happen. First, there's reduction where the water evaporates away, which leaves you with a more concentrated flavor. All the flavors meld together, and so they come together in this beautiful symphony. So, if you would like the recipe for my slow-cooked Italian-American tomato sauce, email me. It's jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com, because I do love to share. And in food news this week, the total grocery store dollar growth may have climbed only 2% in the last year. But organic fresh produce is booming. According to new information released by the Organic Produce Network and Nielsen, organic produce sales reached new heights in 2018, totaling $5.6 billion with a B, which really exceeded the expectation. The year ended on a very big high. Soar, uh, sales soared 13% the final week of the year. And I thought that was really interesting food news. Organic produce on the rise. Well, with that in mind, you will want to stay tuned because coming up, we are going to share the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 so that you can choose when it's essential to buy organic produce. Health coach and blogger Christine Wong is stopping by. Also this hour, we're dishing on Indian food at home and pouring the perfect cocktail with the help of mixologist Tony Abu Ghanem. And you wouldn't want to miss a cocktail now, would you? Okay, grab a snack. Come on back because there is lots more delicious conversation and fabulous food in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen here. I'll be right back. It's delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Christine Wong, the creator of Yummy.com, has made it her passion and her mission to help others discover how delicious mindful eating can be. In the plantiful plate, she shows us how to prepare hearty, satisfying, vegan, and gluten-free dishes that are bursting with flavor and color. So whether you are vegetarian or vegan, plant-based, or dedicated to clean eating, we are sharing recipes, tips, and inspiration for a more plantiful life today. And Christine Wong is here to dish. And I'm glad to have you. Hi, Christine. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Congratulations. The book is beautiful. It is oh, thank you. no doubt a labor of love and your photographs are 
just gorgeous. And it makes your very plant-based life very appealing to even myself, a non-plant-based person. But I very much appreciate the commitment and I believe there is uh, so much value in it. Share your food philosophy, if you would, on being plant strong. Um, Well, the reason why, like with my conscious cooking and when I started Instagram is that I um, really focused on plant-based and being plant strong because I feel like more people need to eat more vegetables in their lives like no matter you know like you for your kind introduction um to but you know, it doesn't this book is not necessarily for vegans but it's just for anyone who wants to integrate more vegetables and more like you know colorful nutrients into their diet and you talk about this plant strong concept which i love for everyone whether it's the meatless monday commitment or to put more Uh, vegan dishes on the table and incorporated into your daily repertoire. You make it very accessible. Um, In addition to being a health coach and a food blogger, you're also an advocate for going plastic free. And I would love for you to enlighten us because this 30-day plastic detox challenge, I think um, it would be only right if I too committed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's the whole the, the whole thing with the food industry is that everything is packaged in plastic, oh, yes. and um, like I found that there are ways of going around that, like buying your food from farmers markets per mm-hmm. se, or just shopping around the perimeters of the supermarket and finding you know food that's real and unpackaged, you know, mm-hmm. and that's all part of being conscious and, you know, plentiful. And how did the challenge go? You had a, a lot of followers. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was it was a great challenge, actually. And it, it, it just really, I didn't approach it in the way that it was preachy, but it's just, you know, things that people can incorporate each day by just taking little baby steps. Okay, so how do we do uh, it? Give us a couple tips. We want to go on a 30-day plastic detox challenge. We're going to better the earth, better ourselves, better the planet. What do we do? Well, first, you start by being mindful. That's very important. Um, And just kind of being aware of how much plastic is in your life or in your supermarket uh, shopping cart. Mm -hmm. And then it's about taking the steps to try to... um, Eliminate plastic from that, uh, like by, like maybe uh, by purchasing your own uh, produce bags, or bringing your own canvas bag, or just or not purchasing um, items in the net. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even the there are many places, you know, many supermarkets they do provide the the produce bags. Yes. And people just automatically grab them. They they get like 20 of them and they put one avocado in one and maybe two two apples in the other. That drives me crazy, but <laughs> and it's so unnecessary, you know, like you it's know true. bananas are already beautifully packaged, you know, they have their own skin and you don't eat the skin, but you know, why would you need to put it in a plastic bag? Mm-hmm. Um so there are just, you know, it, a lot of it is about being mindful. Yes. And, and, and a very simple approach if you create the mindset for it. So I, I, I'm all about that. I, I think that we can all be more mindful about our daily activities to better our lives and better the future generations and their lives. Um, okay. Back to Plant Strong. 
Can you talk about the dirty dozen and the clean 15? Because you describe in the book how you should choose between buying organic and conventional produce. And I I think there's a lot of wisdom that we could gain from you from that. It's quite unfortunate that there's so many, um, we don't know how our produce is being grown. Mm. Uh, So there there are lots of pesticides being used. And some of the the produce absorbs the chemicals more than others. So, hence the dirty dozen are the ones that um, that do absorb more chemicals, like uh, spinach and berries. Okay, so give us the list. If if we were to choose organic, uh, because we have the knowledge and power to do so, you say strawberries, spinach, right? Nectarines, apples, peaches, pears, cherries, grapes, Grapes, celery, celery, go ahead, tomatoes, tomatoes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) potatoes, and hot peppers. Those are all the best choices for organic, correct? Yeah. They're the dirty dozen. Yeah. Then there are the clean 15, and those all seem to have their own wrapper, like you talked, or many of them, like you talked about the banana, right? We don't have to worry mm-hmm. about corn or avocados or pineapple or cabbage or papaya because they remain clean and intact in the interior. Mm-hmm. So smart, right? So it really is just that conscious way of eating and living. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. Because Christine Wong is here. The book is called The Plantiful Plate. And it is about being mindful in eating and living. And we're going to get cooking in just a moment. Talk buying in bulk. You're big on it, Christine. Yeah, I love uh, visiting the bulk uh, sections of the supermarkets and actually finding in in New York City, we have uh, food co-ops, which you can bring your own jars and you fill, you fill them up, and you basically you just buy what you need. And it's mainly dry ingredients like rice and grains or nuts or seeds. Uh, there's plenty of things that you can get that you can buy in bulk. There's lots of really delicious inspiration in the book, and um, congratulations and kudos to you. I know this is your first baby in the form of a hardback. Uh, and we're uh, a Howard cover book, and we're very excited. Uh, filled with Christine's gorgeous photos, the plantiful plate is truly a feast for the eyes. It's all about mindful eating and mindful living, and there are a bevy of lessons and recipes to inspire you. We can all learn from Christine's teachings. So find the book on Amazon. It's called The Plantiful Plate. It's written by Christine Wong. You know her and love her as the creator of Yummy.com, Y-O-M-M-M-E. And you can follow Christine at Conscious underscore cooking, Conscious underscore cooking. Um, Christine, thank you. Uh, for sharing your passion. Glad to have you on the radio. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, a pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, feeding your soul one weekend at a time, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back.
This is where knowledge and inspiration is served up every weekend. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. In her earnest debut cookbook, banker and blogger Swayam Purna Mishra shares Indian recipes inspired by her childhood with modern creative twists. Chai-spiced cinnamon rolls and mushroom-fried rice, butter chicken and bread pudding in ghee. Her vibrant Indian cooking made simple is shared in My Indian Kitchen. Her new book just released and Swam, as she is belovedly called, is here to dish live on the phone from India. I'm very glad to have you, Swam. Welcome and congratulations. The book is beautiful, so full of heart. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you, of course. I'm very glad to have you here. I love Indian food, Swam. I love the rich spices and the comforting aromas. There's something very satisfying about Indian food to me. So describe for us, if you would, your style of Indian cooking. So my style of Indian cooking is very, very homely cooking. You know, it's not, uh, it's not overly complicated at all. I go back to my roots. I cook the way my granny and my mom taught me to. Mm. So which means that essentially the food that I'm serving is the food that was traditionally made in Indian homes long before we got, you know, uh, went into the fusion way and tried to modernize everything and tried to make everything more trendy. So the recipes here are very, very simple at heart. They are something that you would want to cook for your families on weekdays, on weeknights. You know, it's easy, simple cooking, purely cooked from the heart. I love that you've simplified it because I think Indian food can be challenging with regard to the number of ingredients, the lengthy methods. I mean, it it really is a labor of love many times. You know, when I was making this book, I was consciously trying to keep the recipes very simple. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, the main agenda of this book was to make Indian cuisine approachable to everyone in the world. You know, Mm -hmm. the basic uh, misconception everyone has is Indian cuisine is very, uh, very, very tough to make and it's very technical and it has got a lot of layers, a lot of... To it. You know, there's a lot of pounding of things, there's a lot of grinding of things, so it takes time to make. But I wanted to create recipes for everyone in the world, so even if someone doesn't know Indian cooking, they could attempt to make a couple of curries, or you know, the dal, which is so popular these days, they could yes. attempt to make those without feeling, uh, you know, scared or running out of the kitchen or losing patience. <laughs> so this is why I try to keep the recipes very simple and tart. And you know, with uh, uh, not too many ingredients, so most of the recipes you see use very basic ingredients that you just buy once and you can have in your pantry. And you can keep using them for almost all the recipes that you see in the book. Yes. And I love that you make it approachable. There are a few pantry basics that I know that you use in your recipes over and over again. Uh, a red chili yes. powder, right? Uh, fenugreek yes. leaves. Yes. Name a few yes. essential Indian spices that we will use over and over, please. A couple of spices that are a must in Indian cooking, uh, according to me. <laughs> cumin seeds, cumin coriander seed. seeds, mm-hmm. mustard seeds. These three seeds have to be there in your kitchen pantry, uh, in your spice box. You know, the typical we have a spice box. Every Indian house has a spice box. Okay. So these three seeds have to be there. Then there is the Kashmiri red chili powder that I use particularly, which is uh, not very spicy, so it's not fiery hot, yet it gives a beautiful color and, you know, a little bit of depth of heat to the dishes as opposed to the fiery heat that you can feel. So the Kashmiri red chili powder and the dry fenugreek leaves. 
these are absolutely essential in a kitchen. Yes, five essentials. And I looked up Kashmiri red chili powder, and it is readily available. And so I love that you've given us a suggestion. One Indian chili powder that adds color and flavor and boldness and warmth and heat goes a long way. Uh, Before we dig into the recipes, Swam, I would love to know how the food scene in India has elevated or changed of late because it is ever evolving, is it not? It is. I think food is such a thing that we are always creating new things or we are going back to our roots. You know, last couple of years back, uh, the entire food industry, the people who were eating along with the the chefs, we were all obsessed with molecular gastronomy. Everyone was trying to, you know, be trendy, do fusion, <laughs> do the coolest new thing. Right. This year, I'm seeing the trend move more towards local. You know, we are all trying to uh, be more seasonal, eat more seasonal, eat more locally grown produce, try to highlight what is in-house, you know, homegrown vegetables, homegrown fruits, try to highlight those. So I'm seeing a big comeback to seasonal eating, about seasonal eating this year. Yes, and I think that's wonderful. I think we're seeing that globally, where we're connecting to food again in a, a very traditional way. Yes, sustainable living is very important. It's also important for us to try and grow some stuff on our own. Yes. You know, vegetables, small vegetables, have a small patch of vegetable garden in your home, a herb mm-hmm. garden, if nothing else. It's very important to try and live sustainably in this in this world. It's a small thing we can do for the planet. I think it really works. Yes, and I think it's fascinating to see it work on a global level. Um, okay, let's cook, Absolutely. Swam. I, lo- I love butter chicken. And so that will be the first recipe. Who doesn't? The name name alone, how could you not love it? Exactly. You have the chicken cube, and then you have the butter cube. And then you're using butter everywhere. (laughs) That's very true. Um, Talk to us about the variations of your recipe. So my butter chicken is not the sweetened version that you get in most restaurants. What I have made is the classic butter chicken. So, you know, it's not overly sweetened. It's spicy. It's got a perfect balance. So there's a little bit of heat uh, underneath, you know, underlying heat to, to the curry. Yet it's very comforting. It's very, it comes together really easily. It's just, you know, putting some ingredients together in one pot and letting it simmer for a long time. It's the simmering, you know, the long, slow simmering mm-hmm. that really makes the curry, the gravy rich and really, really fragrant. So you cannot hurry this curry. You have to take <laughs> your time and let the curry really, really simmer. And uh, when you're done with it, you're left with a gravy that you just want to sit up on a couch with a plate of naan or some little rice and have a bowl of that rich, delicious gravy in front of you and those succulent pieces and watch something on Netflix. That's it. That's the idea of perfect Friday night. Yeah, the, the perfect Friday night, no doubt. I love how tender the chicken is, but I do have to say... I could eat the, and I love that you associate it as a gravy, right? I could sip the curry sauce just by itself, like like a bowl of soup. <laughs> I mean, that's how delicious and, and rich that beautiful is. flavor is. A well-made butter chicken gravy is absolutely oh. delicious. And oh. the best part is, it, you know, it gets even better when it's left overnight. So the curry really, the flavor smells even better. Yes. And the next morning, the curry tastes way better when you have it for the next day, you know, after 24 hours, because it's much better. Spooned over rice. And you can do a lot of things with the butter chicken gravy. You know, it's not just limited to one kind. You can add it in a lot of stuff as pizza toppings, as a pizza-based topping. You can put it in lots and lots of stuff. We use butter chicken gravy for so many things. 
so that is there you can always wrap the chicken for mushrooms or tofu and have a tofu curry also oh how so smart I love that. Um, chai is very popular here in the States and ever growing. And you make a cinnamon yeah. roll, uh, you know, v- very, yeah. Ameri- very Americanized. And I love that. But with a chai spice yes. blend, which I think proves that the um, ethnic influence and the global uh, culinary world uh, is just ab- absolutely ever present, right? If you have a cinnamon roll recipe that you love, um, we can add mm-hmm. your chai spice blend instead of just simple yes. brown sugar and, roll. Yes, uh, exactly. and, and really elevate it. You should totally try this. I think my home, uh, this home blend, chai spice blend that I have on the book, in the book itself, it's a beautiful balance of flavors. Like, you know, there's ginger, there's cinnamon, there's a little bit of cloves and nutmeg in it. There is, of course, some green cardamom, which is like essential in our chai, you know, the chai that we grew at home. We love adding ginger and green cardamom. So mm. these flavors, there's a little bit of black pepper for that slight bit of, uh, you know, again, the heat that comes in all Indian cuisine, all Indian food. Yes. So the heat is there even in a chai. So we add all these flavors together. And when you take uh, something as essential as a cinnamon roll, and instead of the basic cinnamon and brown sugar, you right. fill it with this blend. And then you drizzle that Irish, uh, you know, baby, sickly baby cream on that. Mm. It's absolutely pure heaven. I'm telling you, this is like one of the best breakfasts ever. Now, how could it so not be? So you have be? to make this. Yeah, it's <laughs> really decadent. Yes. And it's a complete treat. So you want to make this and serve it to your favorite people in the world. You can enjoy your favorite Indian foods with faster cooking times and accessible ingredients and all the wonderful, exciting flavors in the gorgeous, inspiring new guide to modern Indian cuisine. It is written by Swayam Purna Mishra, the founder of the blog La Petite Chef, as she invites you into her kitchen. My Indian Kitchen is available at Amazon and beyond. You can follow Swam at La Petite Chef and it will make you hungry. Uh, and once again, um, thank you for sharing your passion, Swam, for calling in. I'm very grateful, and uh, I hope that you'll come back on thank the radio you so soon. Much, Amy. Thank you. My pleasure, absolutely. Thank you. Yes, of course. There's lots more fabulous food from around the world in your radio right after this. Salud, cheers, and a toast to you, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. The modern mixologist is back, and we're digging deep today to better understand what really makes a cocktail. So grab a glass, because Tony Abu Ghanem is pouring. Tony is widely regarded as a pioneer in the bar world, the author of The Modern Mixologist and Vodka Distilled, both award-winning books, as you know, and a partner in the Mandalay Bay Las Vegas gastropub hotspot, Libertine Social. You've seen him win three Iron Chef competitions on the Food Network, and he's taking us on a cocktail journey again today to arm you with a wealth of knowledge when it comes to spirits 
And I'm very glad to have you back. Happy New Year. Hi, Tony. Hey, Jamie. Happy New Year to you. (laughs) Thank you very much. As we seem to get deeper into the year day by day, but faster than ever. Uh, I don't know where the time goes. (laughs) What is it about certain cocktails that get people talking for years after they were invented? If we're going back to to our roots, let's say, why are some drinks timeless? Do tell. Well, I think there's a great old saying that God is in the details, and I mm. feel the same way about a well-made cocktail. Yes. And when, really, when you look back at those drinks, those drinks that have passed the test of time and are with us today, simplicity. They're, mm. they're simple, really, concoctions that consist of two, three, maybe four ingredients, but really pay homage to those details. And when I talk about details in a cocktail, you know, the quality of, of the glass. Right. Uh, as you know, Jamie, a martini just tastes better in a crystal glass than it does in an old jam jar with, hmm. you know, that you've had since college. Mm-hmm. Um, details such as the quality of the ice. Unfortunately, we've neglected the importance of ice in libations today, and it really is the foundation to virtually any drink. Um, fresh ingredients, balance, garnish, all of these things will lead to an overall experience that we don't have to get so creative with all the esoteric ingredients, but just wrap it all up in a nice package and drink deliciously. Yes, I was going to say, and and toast to that. Let's talk about the details. So, yes, we do know that a red Solo cup does not (laughs) lend itself as well uh, to the classic gin and tonic. As a, as a low ball or a high ball glass, for that matter, does. Uh, and so you buy, like I say about cookware and those things that matter, like knives in a kitchen, you buy the best that you can afford and you cherish them, right? I mean, I, I do cherish my knives and I mm-hmm. baby them and I treat them well and I hand wash them and dry them and keep them sharp. And the same applies to your bar. If you want to master the ultimate cocktail, you have to really put some love into those things that make up the cocktail. If we're talking ice at home, what is your best tip? Directional freezing for ice at home, Jamie. Uh, much like Mother Nature freezes ice from the top down in a lake, directional freezing at home is the only way to make crystal clear ice. And there are several units that are available that uh, today that you can buy that freeze ice from the top down. Mm-hmm. But the way I do it is just in a, in a small igloo in my chest freezer in my garage. So the top third is crystal clear and the bottom two-thirds is cloudy. I cut that away. I throw it in my pool, and then I break up the big piece of clear ice. And once you've gone this way, Jamie, you you can't go back to that cloudy white ice that your freezer ice Ice machine makes. Right. Tell us about your trip to Japan before I let you go, what you took from it. Because speaking of uh, the details and the beauty of simplicity, um, I can only imagine. At Liberty Social, um, our restaurant, we installed one of these Japanese highball machines. And I was so fascinated with the idea of the highball because it was probably the first drink that I learned at my cousin Helen David's bar, the Brass Rail in Port Huron, because she sold a ton of highballs. We were right on the Canadian border, so blended Canadian whiskey and Mm -hmm. American whiskeys. So this 
idea and concept of the highball, the simplest drink of all, spirit and soda. And going to Japan, I really got immersed in this drink because everywhere you went, every gastropub would have these wonderful Suntory highball machines and mm. produce this really heavy carbonated soda and very bubbly. And this is so important in this drink. And again, we go back to details because you have ice, glass, garnish, and soda and spirit. So it's the really the paying attention to those elements yes. and producing the best drink that you can, the simplest drink that you can, right. a two-ingredient drink. Um, will you come back come spring, Tony, and we'll stir up some lighter, lovelier cocktails, please? Oh, absolutely, Jamie. I'm uh, always a pleasure to be on your show. You can find Tony's cocktail escapades at themodernmixologist.com and follow him on social at mdrnmixologist. Tony, cheers. Thank you again. Cheers to you, Jamie. Take care. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of eating and drinking like you've never done before. If you're hungry for more, check out chefjamie.com where there are a bevy of recipes to choose from. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation and inspiration. If you're feeling fancy this weekend, or maybe even this week, because it's just so simple, why not make a galette? It sounds extravagant, right? It is practically the easiest baked dessert there is, and it's rustic, and it's beautiful, and you look like a culinary hero. So you can use either homemade or store-bought pie crust, and you can pile it high with your fruit of choice. But the winter Anjou pear has been delicious this season. And so I just fill that store-bought pie crust that's been rolled out to a big rustic round 13-inch diameter on a piece of parchment paper with pears that are firm but ripe, sliced, you know, seeds removed and core and so on. I've tossed the pears, by the way, in some caramel sauce. I pile them into the crust, leaving a border, and then fold the edges of the crust over the pears, leaving the pears uh, visible in the center. And then you bake the galette at 375 degrees. It takes 45 minutes to an hour or so. Maybe a little sea salt caramel drizzled over top. And you have a three-ingredient dessert that will wow. And I will post my three-ingredient caramel pear galette on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend where I promise there will be lots more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.